Cut it! Johnny, uh, maybe we gotta do one of those waves. Just a bit outside. He tried the corner and missed. Strikeouts are boring. Besides that, they're fascist. Throw some ground ball. More democratic. That's too high. Too hard, right? First, it was really high. Welcome back, everyone, to our latest episode of the Cutoff Man podcast, uh, where we will go through our baseball ramblings of the last few weeks. Uh, and I'm Zach Farmer, alongside my partner, as usual, uh, Max Harris. How's it going, Max? I'm great, Zach. How are you? Uh, hang, hanging in there now that baseball is completed. We are through another World Series. Begrudgingly, I have to congratulate the Los Angeles Dodgers for winning a World Series finally after 32 years. So, um, and one of the things as, as we kind of like went through that World Series, as amazing as it was to kind of see that go down, and obviously everyone's going to have different thoughts and whatnot about how it, how it was managed and how things went down. Um, but now we have to kind of look forward and kind of look at what the off season is going to bring. And obviously one of the big topics going into 2020 and obviously in, even in 2019 was the collective bargaining agreement. We are in a place where, well, we could see stoppages. We could see delays on when baseball gets going again. We hope obviously that's not the case moving forward, but there are going to be some big hot button issues that are brought up to make sure that baseball continues and gets back on track as as normally scheduled. And one of the things that kind of like really kind of sticks out for me is the idea of player evaluation. And because as we've seen in the past, over the last, especially the five years, uh, certain players that especially those who are now our MVP level candidates or whatnot are not being paid as such. So if we look at recently when Mookie Betts first won his MVP or when Bryce Harper first won his, they were still on their rookie contracts or still in like year one or two of arbitration. And so they're not getting the full value of what they are. And by the time a lot of these guys are getting to free agency, they're not quite, they're not going to see the, the dollars or whatnot that they might normally, because now you're looking at they're the basically their contracts would take up most of their 30s and teams are not seeing value in guys in their 30s as much anymore so i kind of pitch it to, to you max of like what what sort of like issues or topics do you kind of see like with the new cba coming up that's right so the collective bargaining agreement expires at the end of next season um but as you mentioned, Zach, we saw a lot of acrimony at the start of this season. We might see some continued rumblings, especially if it uh, looks like we will not be able to start next season with full ballparks. And so we might have another sort of protracted round of owners asking for concessions from the players like they did this season in order to get this season off the ground. So even though the CPA is set to expire at the end of next season, for all intents and purposes, it might as well be expiring at the end of this year because we're already going to start to see the, some of those protracted grumblings this year. Um, to your point, we have seen players, and this has been a big shift in baseball in the last 10 years, especially compared to the baseball that we grew up watching in the late 90s and early 2000s, where players are making a huge impact 
in their first, second, and third seasons, especially in your first three years, you can basically be paid the minimum years four through six, or in some cases, three through six, depending on how much service time you accrue, you are eligible for arbitration. And after your sixth season, then you become a free agent. Uh, But to your point, we've seen Mike Trout come up and immediately become the best player in baseball. We saw Aaron Judge win an MVP, you know, play at an MVP level pretty quickly. Same with Ronald Acuna. Chris Bryant won an MVP, I believe, in his second full season. And right now, we're we're not seeing a correlation between player salaries and player performance. And I wonder what the players are going to do to address that next CBA. And that's definitely one of the issues. And I think one of the things you can kind of point to is where's where's the revenue going, or not necessarily where the revenue is going, but what where players' salaries are right now for baseball. Uh, I'm not going to look at 2020 because obviously we had to adjust a lot on the salary front because of number of games, no fans, and everything else. So I went back to 2019 and kind of looked at some of the numbers. And you had your top salary team at $229 million, That was the Red Sox. And then the bottom of that was a $64 million raise team. And that is a massive gap between the top and the bottom. And we've seen it in other, in other leagues like where they're, they've instituted salary bottoms. The teams even have to spend X amount just to make sure that there's some equity on the player front. And I think that's an important note to say that it's like, hey, we want owners to put the money back on the field. We want them to be able, we want to be able to see teams be more competitive on a regular basis, even if you're toward the bottom of the league. Yeah. For me, the the players are the product. I want players to get as much money as possible for the simple reason that if players made less then the owners would just make more. And it's never been explained to me how that is better. There is no evidence to support that if players made less money, the ticket prices would go down or the price of beer would go down. That's just complete nonsense. Um, I have never seen, I I have never seen a discount on a beer ever. (laughs) No, neither have I. Although, um, actually, well, I saw it at a couple of Expos games, but that's a different story. It was actually a discount for the Americans to go to the games too, because our dollar was really in the tank. So Expos games, very, very affordable for Americans, especially ones that were living a couple hours away up in upstate New York and Vermont. But I digress. Um, look, point is... Obviously, I want to see labor peace. And this period of labor peace has been fairly unprecedented since we've had collective bargaining. Baseball, I believe, had eight labor stoppages uh, between the 70s, 80s, and up into the early 90s. We have not had a major labor stoppage since then. You could potentially argue that the beginning of this season constitutes one. There were some unique circumstances that caused this season's delay. You could argue that had the two sides been more aligned, that we would have seen more games this year. And so if you want to call this year a hidden labor stoppage, perhaps you can. But, you know, the game has never been in better health financially. But it hasn't necessarily improved from a fan experience standpoint because teams don't have the same incentive structures that they used to. So one of the things on that incentive structure or really the the way the game has changed recently obviously has been the starting the use of the starting pitchers and over the course of the last 20 years obviously we've seen it trend more to shorter outings higher use of the bullpens and whatnot and i think one of the things that's harder for fans to get their head around is the idea that they can't 
kind of mark down, like I'm going to see X starter for six, seven innings in a game because that's just not the way the game is going now. And you used to pay, say, the starters 20, $25 million. And it's obviously some you still do. Your top tier guys still are getting that. But you have fewer of those guys around. And it makes it, I think it's harder for a fan experience to say like, I want to pay X amount to go see this pitcher because he's going to be in town, but no, he's only going to throw four and two thirds. Well, and the Rays are a really good example of this, right? They have a strategy which makes their pitchers somewhat interchangeable and dispensable. And so as a result, they're able to suppress wages by employing uh, lower, well, middle tier starters or middle tier relievers and just having a whole arsenal of them, usually in their first three to four years at major league service when they're making the minimum or near the minimum, they've been pretty effective at that in terms of finding guys and and being able to plug them in and making them productive major leaguers. But a, their salaries don't reflect that they're not getting, none of these guys are going to get top end money, not Pete Fairbanks, uh, not Casilla, not Anderson. You're not going to see them hit the market and be marquee free agents because they're not pitching enough innings to justify it. And then we as spectators, I think we're losing something by not having starting pitchers go deep in the games. If you think about the starting pitcher as kind of the protagonist of the game, it doesn't make for as good of a story. And, you know, and I thought that I used to think at first that if you had a lot of different pitchers, that that would really speak to the team element, that this was really a collective effort, that it took six, seven, eight pitchers, all kind of pulling their weight and doing their part. But the more that I think about it, having a workhorse starting pitcher who is fighting through adversity, who is having to find a way to get out, even when they don't have their best stuff. You talk about the legendary stories of somebody like a Koufax who pitches game seven of the World Series in 65, and his curveball is not working, and he has to find a way to get hitters out just with his fastball. And the adjustment, the adversity, having to kind of battle through and work your way through a performance, we are losing that, and it is tied with – you know, which is frankly also a cost-cutting measure. You can't really separate the two, Zach. Just looking over the – again, like I kind of went over the numbers the last 20 years, and, and let's even take it back to like the 2005 season where the World Series champion that year, the Chicago White Sox, and yes, maybe they are the anomaly in all of this because they had a starting staff who of five who basically made every single start all year long and they averaged six and two-thirds innings per start. So Freddie Garcia, uh, Esteban Loaiza, El Duque, uh, let's see who Mark that Burley. was also Mark Burley on that team, Jose Contreras on that team. Like that staff was obviously maybe they're the outlier in all of this, but that's what it was even just 15 years ago. And now you take it to what happened this year, the Dodgers the World Series champion Dodgers averaged just above five innings per start. And this, so in 15 years, we've seen an inning and two thirds on average of a change. That's a lot in a 15 year window. Yeah. And it's certainly not unique to teams like the Rays. You would think a team like the Dodgers, the quote unquote, big market, big payroll team wouldn't have this problem. And yet they entered the World Series with really two solid starting pitchers. You know, even with the Yankees right now, uh, you saw this with the Yankees. Again, the Yankees of all teams. You know, if there's any team that epitomizes, oh, we can afford, you know, brand name starting pitchers, we can have depth, we can have lots of them. 
you know, that was certainly the hallmark of the Yankees of the late 90s and early 2000s. And yet by the ALCS last year, they were using bullpen games in very big ALCS games. I mean, so this is not unique to the Rays, um, but it also shows on one hand, pitching has never been better in the sense that you have all of these middle relievers who can come in and throw absolute gas, right? Like remember when we were growing up, the idea was we got to get rid of the starter. We got to knock the starter out of the game. Now you knock the starter out in the fourth inning and some guy pitches in the fifth and it's throwing 98-99. So on oh, one yeah. hand, we yeah, right. Like on one hand, we we've never had more pitching. And yet on the other hand, we've never had less starting pitching. And it's so bizarre. Or you have a team who's just planning on not using the starter past the third inning anyway. That's right. I mean, remember in 2014 when Bochi went to the bullpen in the second inning? It was on Tim Hudson, right? Yeah, Tim Hudson. And that was jarring at the time of like, wow, what a courageous move by Bochi, you know, to have the courage to be able to do this in such a big game and to to intervene. Well, the Giants that year really only had one starting pitcher by that point. <laughs> sure, but it was still seen as such a unusual move. And now we watch the World Series, and the moment a starting pitcher gets in trouble in the second inning, there are calls to go to the bullpen. And it seemed as weird if, it, if the manager doesn't. Again, I'm not saying that's good or bad. I'm just saying it is a relatively huge, huge difference in just a relatively short period of time in terms of what the quote-unquote conventional strategy is. And this sort of strategy, this thought is there's a trickle-down effect that obviously affects players' salary, that affects what the CBA looks like, affects the way fan, the way fans treat the game and the way they digest the game. And I think that's the one thing where it's like, as much as like, oh, this is maybe fans just complaining about strategy of baseball but no there is a there is some trickle down effect that will happen and is happening right now absolutely and so from a continuity standpoint i think it's easier for fans to engage in a game where they know the three or four starting pitchers and they know two or three relievers and those people are going to throw the bulk of the innings right now not only teams are carrying eight nine people in the bullpen but you might see 20, 25 relievers in a season. And that's becoming increasingly harder for the average fan to stay on top of who's on which team, who's on your team, who's this guy coming in all of a sudden. I've never heard, you know, that is a thought. And maybe I'm just getting older, but even I must concede that just watching random games, there are more players um, for whom we are not familiar with, who, by the way, are still great players who are throwing mid to high 90s in some cases, but yet exist as relatively anonymous major leaguers. Hard for me to start to buy jerseys for all these relievers who are going to be there for maybe a couple of weeks before they head back to to the minor leagues. So you're not going to buy a Trevor Gott jersey? I think I'll pass. Okay. No, I don't blame you. I mean, look, it, and certainly even marquee closers, you know, I, I think have become star players. And that's certainly been a change in the last 20 to 30 years that a star closer can be a, a franchise player, not just like a Rivera, but even like a Hoffman or a Wagner. But there's so few, there are so few, but there's so of, few those of those guys. Right. I mean, look at the A's in terms of who's been closing for them over the past decade. And those are some really good teams, but they've rarely had a closer last more than a couple of years. Exactly. And even if you look at some, a lot of the teams who win the World Series or even multiple World Series, like they're not rolling with the same closer. 
the three giants champ, three giants championships. You had a different closer each year. That's right. So, yeah, look, it'll be interesting to see what happens this off season because even though, like I said, the CBA doesn't expire until the end of next season. Depending on what kind of concessions the owners might be looking from the players, we could see more acrimony this off season that could potentially spill into a protracted. I hate to say it, labor stoppage in 2022. So what happens this offseason? How much um, ill will is built over um, what's negotiated or what needs to get renegotiated in order to make 2021 happen could have long-term ramifications for the sport. And obviously, like some of the guys we talked about that are going to be involved in this are on the champion Dodgers. So guys like Corey Seager, Corey Bellinger, Walker Bueller are all going to fall into this category uh, going into 2021 and 22. That's right. And we forgot about Bellinger as one of the MVPs. Again, somebody that came up and was highly productive in his second and third year. And I don't think Bellinger is your favorite Dodger though, Zach. No, he is not. Although I would say Max Muncy is probably higher on my Dodgers. I don't like list. Well, that list is a very long list, which made me think of a list that might be a little bit shorter. In watching Mookie Betts, I can't, I can't see how anyone could dislike him, which makes me want to ask you, the giant stand in here, which Dodger of your lifetime do you dislike the least? Or do you like the most? Maybe I should frame it that way. Who's the most likable Dodger of your lifetime? Because the obvious answer for me would probably be Mookie Betts. I I feel like there are going to be Giants fans that I'm going to hear from, friends I'm going to get texts from that say, like, the answer is nobody. (laughs) But... I I said most likable. I I, I guess somebody could be the most likable and still be relatively unlikable because he wears Dodger colors, although... Actually, the Dodgers have great hats, which we'll talk to talk about a little bit later. But uh, yeah, I mean, there, I, in my mind, like there have been some maybe more likable and less disagreeable Dodgers over the years. Uh, and but harder, Mookie, I'll make no, like I'm, this. I'm with are, Mookie, go ahead. Are there Dodgers that are harder? Who is the Dodger that is hardest to hate? Right now, now I will answer the Mookie Betts one first. I don't think he's been a Dodger long enough. I don't think of him as a Dodger yet because I I feel like the rite of passage in the rivalry is you do something against the other team, and I don't, Mookie hasn't had that moment yet against the Giants. So I like I'm like I'm not going to include him in this yet. So that said, I I think it's Kershaw. I Clayton Kershaw is one of the more likable guys in all of baseball. He says all the right things. He does all the right things. He's involved in the community. Uh, he it's a he's kind of infectious. Let alone the fact that he's also one of the better pitchers in the entire game. Like he is, he's probably the one or two best pitchers of this generation and having him part of the rivalry makes the rivalry fun. And I think that's one of the things as a fan, it's like every time I see the Dodgers, like I almost hope that Kershaw's in the rotation that weekend because I want to see him throw. I want to see him against my team and I want to be able to 
us to beat him as and even though I take great pleasure in when I saw him struggle in the postseason, uh, he has still been one of the more likable guys, and it's hard not it's hard not to like Clayton Kershaw. Yeah, so somebody who is not a Giants fan and myself, but has been to several Giants and Dodgers games up in San Francisco, there's definitely a different energy in the ballpark when the Dodgers are in town, and there are definitely Dodgers that are genuinely disliked by Giants fans. I would say Muncie, especially after uh, what he told Bumgarner last year, I think is certainly high on the list. People dislike Jack Peterson. People have disliked Yasiel Puig when he was on the team. Kershaw gets booed, but people sort of boo out of a sense of obligation. They boo him because he's great as opposed to what he's done. And even though Giants fans, I think, fear him because of how dominant he has been against the Giants, I think if you have tickets for a Giants-Dodgers game and you know that Kershaw is pitching, then that makes it extra special, even as a Giants fan, I would think. Absolutely. I I mean, yeah, the list of guys that Giants fans really despise is 10 miles long. We could be here all night talking about all the Dodgers I really don't like. Uh, but the but Kershaw makes it special. Kershaw at just adds a different wrinkle and a different feel to the rivalry. Uh, the fact that he's a homegrown guy, the fact that he, I, to me, I actually thought it was like the fact that he and Bumgarner came up at the same time, roughly the same time. And those matchups were amazing. It was kind of like thinking about if it was like Koufax and Marischal back in the day, like it kind of like brings you back to think of like these amazing matchups that great starting pitchers would have against each other. And we got to see that a lot with those two and that, that made it fun. And I, and he did it. He did it all kind of like the right way. There was a lot of respect, I think with Kershaw to everything that he did. Absolutely. And and to your point, I think I still picture Mookie Betts in a Boston uniform, but I will always picture Clayton Kershaw in a Dodgers uniform. Although speaking of uniform, Zach, you actually had a bone to pick with me. Yeah. All right. So you tweeted out during the World Series, I think it was game five, when the Rays were wearing one of their alternate caps. And they, it was it was the image of the, the Devil Ray in a and a blue and neon green circle. And you basically said that it was that you cannot stand these graphic hats that don't have the city, the city identifier on them. I, 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 for one, I love these hats. Like I want to know your beef with these hats. I think those hats belong in the minor leagues where the goal of minor league baseball and branding a team is to be a little bit outlandish because people do not have a tie to the geographic location. I think one of the great things about baseball caps is that they have become a piece of fashion, even to non baseball fans because they represent their municipality. And so whether it's the interlocking LA of the Dodgers, the SF of the giants, the NY of the Yankees and to a lesser extent, the best, but they still have an NY in their hat as well, that these hats um, really have an opportunity to sort of put um, these cities on the map. And I feel like that logo 
And that form of cap helps do, do that and really sort of certifies a city as being major league. And to me, having a graphic logo on your cap does not feel as major league to me. All right. Well, now I'm going to pitch a few of the longstanding major league hats that actually have graphics on them. There are a few of them. Yes, I'm aware. Go ahead. Like, say, the Toronto Blue Jays. They do. Um, The Baltimore Orioles. They do, actually. So I prefer at least the O. I much prefer, well, because those O's capped that just had the O and the apostrophe S, those were pretty plain. And then they went the very generic bird in the 90s, and those were horrible hats. I'm sorry, like, I at least prefer the animated bird over the very sort of placid-looking Oriole of the 90s. Um, but you don't think that they can come up with a cool B in orange? I like their hat. I like the Orioles hat. As me, like, I actually like the pinwheel hats. So I liked having the white front with the with the bird on it. Like, I think those are re- – I think they're really cool i think they're unique i don't think they're quote minor league i don't think they're kitschy or anything like that to me it's like it makes them unique and when i see that hat i know that's baltimore you don't have to sell any expos fan on the idea of a pinwheel tricolor hat believe me i'm a big fan (laughs) all right what about the astros back in the 90s when it was the that open star there was no h on in their logo it was just that image the star I don't think that was a very good logo. All right, all right. Now here's one that it's no, not a logo, but it's, but it's not an identifier of the city either. What about the A's? I think the A's have great caps. I really love the A's uniforms. I will say, and this is going to be a bit of a cop out, but so be it. One of the things I like about the A's fans, and one of the things that I think separates the A's from other franchises in baseball. If you go to a Red Sox game, they'll chant, let's go Red Sox. If you go to a Yankees game, they'll chant, let's go Yankees. By and large, people will cheer for the nickname of the team. But if you go to an A's game, they chant, let's go Oakland. And I always thought that was really cool. Um, That being said, I'm sure they can come up with a cool hat with O. And then, like, yes, obviously it's too late now. And the A has become very traditional. Um... To me, it's an accident of history, especially because the athletics play not just in Oakland, but in Kansas City and Philadelphia. Now, again, no one sees that hat and thinks, oh, Philadelphia, Connie Mack. But um, nevertheless, I think it would have been cool if they had the O instead, especially for a city that needs the recognition like Oakland and deserves it, frankly. I am I am just a sucker for the for the creative graphic hats. <laughs> I've actually spent a good chunk of the pandemic actually finding some of those minor league hats, some of those other major league hats that have some of those designs. Like I said, I'm fine with those for minor league hats. Um, I don't think anybody sees a B and thinks, oh yeah, that's the Birmingham Barons. People assume it's the Red Sox or if you're a real hipster, the Brooklyn Dodgers. But I think for major league caps for that are played in cities, the major league cities, um, I, I think it's supposed to represent something larger. And I think it's cool that non-baseball fans will buy a hat. Like I have friends that own Giants hats, not because they're Giants fans, but because they're San Franciscans. And the Giants hat represents that in a way that if there was some generic logo with a big G on it, I don't think they would have bought those hats. What about, say, a hat that is a graphic, but the 
the city is, or the city name is kind of built into it or somehow like configured into the image. You mean like the Expos hat? Like the Expos hat or the, the current or the Milwaukee Brewers hat. I have no problem with that. Um, I love the Expos hat. I think it's a great hat. I, I am certainly biased, but yes, the, for those that don't know, the Expos hat is actually a stylized M. So yeah, look, I'm all for that. I just don't like the graphic logo hats. I, I think it looks minor league and I was disappointed to see those in the world series. And I know this is going to sound like a very crotchety thing to say, but I would have preferred them to wear the interlocking TV hats. Well, they did it for, did they do it for one game or more than one? They did it for one game with the alternate blue uniforms, uh, the light blues, um, which by the way, I think those are great uniforms. Just not that hat. I don't like the hat. I'm sorry. Well, we can actually be arguing about ball caps and the graphic designs and everything else for a long, long time, but we'll go ahead and get ourselves out of here. So uh, for Max, I am Zach. Uh, Thanks for tuning in and we will catch you next time.